What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, Season 1, Episode 6. My name is James Scully. Today's topic of conversation is switching gears in your professional career and how to make it work for you. And we're going to have this conversation with former municipal bonds trader, Steve Atanasio. And Steve is somebody who left his career at Goldman Sachs when he realized that he wanted to see what was out there for him besides this. He took a journey aboard the Trans-Siberian Railroad, stayed in a Mongolian yurt with a native family, and took the experience that he had with him and wound up meeting a gentleman named Tony Verone at a wedding around the same time. And the two of them had such amazing chemistry in talking about Tony's life and all the things he experienced in World War II that Steve and Tony sat down and recorded Tony's stories into a book that Steve is now self-publishing on Amazon called Untouched Heroics, the true life of a 95-year-old Italian immigrant raised in Brooklyn who served in the United States Army from January of 1941 until June of 1945 surviving eight campaigns as an infantryman in World War II and escaping death and injury innumerable times. So Steve and I sit down and talk about the things you might need to know if you've been considering switching gears in your professional environment. Are you at a job where you feel like you want to see what else is out there in the world for you? Steve and I talk about the things that he went through in order to get to a point where he felt comfortable making that transition. And one of the things that you'll notice we harp on a lot is having the courage to take chances to get to places in life. That's something that I think is very important in general. If we do not take those chances, then we will never know what we're made of and we will never know what we can do. And that's not for everybody. People are happy out there. And once again, I don't want to paint this with a big brush and say that everybody should go do this. But if you have been considering making a switch in your life, this very strong topic of conversation is going to be for you. So I'm going to cut this intro short and keep it right here. And we're going to get to that topic right after this word from our sponsors. So stay tuned for Season 1, Episode 6 with Steven Atanasio. 10 p.m. Eastern Wartime. Your dial is set at 660 WEAF, New York. You've heard about making mountains out of molehills, but here's how to make mountains of dishes go right down to nothing in a hurry. You put some rinseau in your dishpan, and up go the suds. Plenty of thick suds from surprisingly little rinseau. And down goes that stack of dishes in practically no time. Yes, dishwashing is a mighty easy, simple job with Rinso helping out. China, silver, glassware, they're all shining brightly in a jiffy with Rinso's soapy rich suds on the job. Why, even your pots and pans come clean easily when Rinso gets to work. Use Rinso, too, for all the soap and water jobs around the house. It's swell. What's up, guys? Back on the podcast here with published author Steve Atanasio, former municipal bond trader. Uh, municipal bond sales. For Goldman Sachs. And Steve came to an interesting crux in his life and decided to change careers and left his job at Goldman Sachs in New York and bought a ticket for yourself, right? You went by yourself? Uh, I went with three friends from college. Okay, went with three friends from college on the Trans-Siberian uh, Railroad, Railroad yep. which goes through where specifically? We started in Moscow, we stopped in Irkutsk in Russia, mm -hmm. and visited Lake Baikal, one of the largest freshwater lakes in the world, and it was beautiful. And then we went to Mongolia, slept in a yurt, and we ended up in Beijing. And how much, if you don't mind saying, ballpark? Because I feel like that would probably be a lot cheaper than people would think. Yeah, I think in the end it wound up being about $3,000 for three weeks That's of fantastic. travel. It was fantastic. We stayed in hostels, except for the night we slept in the yurt in Mongolia. And the hostels were a lot better than I thought they would be. I, I actually had not spent that much time in hostels previously. The one especially in Beijing was just beautiful. And then, you know, the experience of staying on the train for such a long period of time. The longest stretch was three days and three hours. And I definitely had some insecurities and fears of what that would be like. And it turned out to just be three of the most relaxing days that I've ever had. I mean, it, watching the world pass by through the window. And the big thing about the trains was they all had a supply of hot water mm -hmm. uh, because it's a big tea drinking part of the world. And, right. um, so you just drink some tea. We played chess and talked to other people on the train and read about every place we were stopping along the way. And it was a once in a lifetime experience for sure. I'm really happy I did. Now, take me through 
Because I feel like some people who might be listening have experienced staying in hostels. And some people also have experienced traveling on a train. And I want to go back to that in a few minutes because knowing that you're somebody who appreciates the classic things from the past, train travel would obviously be one of them. But take me through staying in a yurt in Mongolia. Because while I can say that word and read about it, I've never experienced it. And so having experienced that, something that a lot of the Western world has never experienced, what was that like for you? Can you give me a visual? rundown of what that felt like emotionally absolutely well one of the things i'd say first is just that what surprised me the most about the trip was you hear a lot about russia and about china and about the more negative news stories in the world and especially now more than ever the trip was in september of 2013 but when things were much more peaceful in the world one of the things that stood out the most to me was just how wonderful the people were in each of these countries and while our governments might not agree and and other governments may may not be treating people the way they should the citizens themselves in all of the countries that i went to were just so kind and so considerate and We made an effort to be respectful and be very grateful for everyone that we interacted with and what they did for us. But that was probably the most overwhelming thing for me in a very positive way. So it continued all the same when we were in Mongolia. And the people I I was traveling with were, were good friends from college. And it was a very interesting group. One of them was a truly a rocket scientist. One of them was a journalist and the other was a structural engineer. So we had a pretty eclectic group and they had been in St. Petersburg prior to arriving in Moscow. And someone told them, uh, heard that they were going to Mongolia and said, you have to call this woman named Bobby. And she's from Mongolia and she will set you up with a yurt. She has a, a hostel in Mongolia, in Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital, which was a bustling city. And it was really incredible to do experience as well. But they said, call this woman Bobby. And it was a complete chance encounter that my friends had with these people in St. Petersburg. And sure enough, we called this woman Bobby and we set up to stay in her hostel for one evening in, in Ulaanbaatar. And the next day, she set us up with a family who lived in these yurts. And it was on a national, I think, believe it was a, a nat- national park site. It was a father and a mother and I think three children. They lived off the land. They had probably about four or five yurts. One of them was their own. And the whole family lived in this one yurt. And I would say the yurt was probably about 50 feet in diameter. And the beds are aligned along the perimeter. Mm-hmm. And then there's a hot stove right in the center. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mind you, at the time we went, it was the temperature was pretty nice, but it does get very cold at night. It was actually too hot in the yurt itself that we were staying in because it just stays so warm. It's very different from America, obviously, because the family lives in very tight circumstances. The children were young. I'd say the oldest was probably, you know, not older than 10 years old, but there just was a lot of pride and it was a really interesting thing to experience. And the father had a pickup truck that he would drive his daughters to the bus stop to go to school in the morning and they had a direct TV satellite dish sticking out of the yurt. So there's a lot of these things you would not expect, (laughs) but they killed the chickens right on the farmland. And we were just this wide open, massive land with mountains around us and just a couple of yurts sticking out. So at night it was a starlit sky and it was just a very memorable night. We were in in a very similar one and we just slept around the perimeter in these single beds and there was a table in the middle and that's where we ate. And the family for very minimal fee, I think it was like maybe $40 or $50 for an entire day with three meals and then sleeping over and then breakfast the following morning. We couldn't communicate obviously, but we communicated with body language and with our eyes and and we bonded with the little girl the most and the the father actually. Some of the guys helped him carry his water supply from his truck, took it upon ourselves to sort of grab these jugs of water and carry them over and he really appreciated us and we we shook his hand and stuff and he couldn't speak, but he understood. But he understood and we, we sort of like connected in that way and I think that that was the biggest theme of the trip for me is all the different people that we met from these countries and just passing through these countries from other countries, we were able to find a lot of common ground. And I think that all four of us who were on the trip, you know, we really left as sort of different people and took a lot out of it in a very, very positive way because it's easy to read news stories and to take snippets of impressions of of what places are like, but it's another thing when you actually experience it and you go there. And I think if you go there with an open-minded mindset and good intentions, many times you'll find that you're rewarded. There's something that a couple of things I want to hit on. One, and this is neither here nor there really, but I've always said that when you come from Brooklyn, it really doesn't matter what race, what religion, what nationality you are, you're more Brooklyn than anything else. And I think that's a somewhat facetious thing that I've said, but there is truth in that because of the melting pot that Brooklyn has always been. But a lot of that also has to do with general humanity of people. You know, you you think about things on a topical level, governments and wars, and news stories, and this and that, 
And, but no matter where you go, when you meet people, even if you can't speak their own language or they can't speak yours, it's a human kind of connection and communication. It's that shared warmth that really sets people apart from each other. Yeah, and uh, you know, I grew up in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and I definitely agree with what you've said. And I think that one of the things I'm so grateful for is how much of a melting pot Brooklyn was in the 80s and 90s when we were growing up and how... Well, it's always been a melting pot. It's always really. been a melting pot, but I'm just trying to date myself here a little yeah. bit. As we were growing up, I mean, I just think that we had such exposure to so many different types of people from all over the place and everyone just got along so well and there was no one of the things that I always look back on and nostalgically is just my experience in high school I went to there weren't many options in Bay Ridge in terms of co-ed schools so I went to an all-boy Catholic school named Severian High School and Bay Ridge by the way if people don't know is a neighborhood in Brooklyn New York yeah, there was something really powerful about the brotherhood that existed among these guys. We we all came from different neighborhoods. We all came from different backgrounds, economically, uh, ethnically, in, in all different forms. And what meant the most to me and what I couldn't find and what I'm searching for, you know, ever since high school was that innocence and that brotherhood is the best way I can describe it. I was on football teams and I was on participating in other sports and I was in plays where you were bringing together, there were jocks in the plays. We had guys on the football team who were stars on the field also participating in theatrical performances with people whose lives revolved around the theater and everyone got along and everyone was just, those friendships remained and we're still all very close long after that and I just felt like that was sort of a theme of growing up in Brooklyn that oh, we, yeah, sort of, we found the common ground. Mm -hmm. We found the common ground regardless of backgrounds, regardless of how we grew up, regardless of where we came from. It was like an amazing bubble where everyone just got along and we didn't focus on differences but we focused on what was the same. I think in that what's the same oftentimes is the shared experiences and the traditions and also the pride. And that's something that you brought up in talking about the family in Mongolia living off the land. You know, yeah, they had the direct TV satellite. Remnants of life in 21st century, but there's also the remnants of the family hearth inside the yurt. But they're killing chickens right on the land. They are doing their own farming. There's the sense of pride there that somebody has for preparing their own meal from really farm to table for themselves. And with you leaving your career at Goldman Sachs and basically realizing that, like you said to me off camera, you didn't want to wake up when you were 40 and wonder what could have been. And I think some of that is personal pride, in a good way, not in a bad way, where you look at yourself and you say to yourself, I've got to go and find out who I am. I have to go know what I'm made of. I have to know what my true path or paths are. And, and it is a growing, uh, evolving process. And I want to ask you, in the moments that led up to that decision, what was going through your mind for the weeks, the months? Once that kernel was incepted in your brain, how did that take shape? What were the things that you were going through? What pulled you in one direction? What pulled you in another direction? What got you to that point where you said, you know what? Let's do it. Let's take that risk. Well, I think it really goes back to my personality throughout my life. I've always had a very wide range of interests, and I've never been able to fixate on one thing for very long. When I was in high school, I had a tremendous variety of interests. It carried on into college, where I didn't choose my major until junior year because I was looking at English and psychology and economics and government and Finally, I decided I wanted to be a government major with a focus in international relations because in many ways that was a very diverse field and there was a lot of things going on and I could follow all the different things that were going on around the world. And So I think it was my decision to leave the career I had worked in for the past five years was really etched in a desire to explore the world in a new way. And I must say that those five years were fantastic and the people that I met were some of the smartest and the funniest people that I ever interacted with and I learned a ton about how the world works and how the economy works and how so much is possible about how the economic world turns. I started in the crisis. I started, my first day was July 2008. It was right in the middle and I had interned in 2007 before the crisis really unfolded. And by crisis, you obviously mean the, financial the economic yep. you know, somewhat uh, collapse in 2008. Yes. And so I saw that emergence. I saw people performing under circumstances that the world had not seen in decades. And I was watching very talented people. And you perform. probably saw it a little earlier than most of the public. 
in ways, in some ways, and in, in others, it, it caught people by surprise. I mean, there, there was a lot involved in that whole thing with the housing bubble and the way things evolved. But it was a learning experience, and it was probably a once-in-a-lifetime learning experience that I was very fortunate to be in the seat I was in when it happened. I specifically was in municipal bonds, and I found the industry to be one with very strong relationships and very good-natured people. And I had paid my dues, in a way, uh, over the first two or three years and established myself into a routine where I was working pretty good hours, 10, 11 hours a day, Monday through Friday. And just the company itself was a very good company to work for. They really took care of their employees, the, the benefit packages, the compensation, the wellness, all the things that you would want in a career and in a company were there. But at the same time, I saw life passing by mm -hmm. quickly. And every day was fantastic. And every week was great. Before I knew it, months had passed. And I just, I didn't want to wake up, as I said earlier, and be in a situation where I had kids and I was married and I had a mortgage to, to worry about and wonder, well, what else could I have done? And if I had, you know, nine lives, I would have stayed there for a large portion of them. But I established myself enough in this role that I think if I tried, I could come back in some capacity to the financial world. That was a big part of the calculation that I wouldn't be taking this giant leap of faith without a backup plan. And I had built enough positive goodwill to sort of be able to leave on good terms. And if it wasn't going to work out, whatever my next move was, that I would be able to come back and something would work out. So I think that was a big thing. And just in terms of like anyone looking to change careers, that was one of the things. It, it was making sure that I left in a way where I expressed that I just was looking to pursue my passions and to follow my heart, per se, into something that I didn't know what. It was the unknown. It was the abyss. But I just knew that I didn't want to have one thing to my name. And the biggest word I kept repeating to my senior management and people that had hired me was just my gratitude for what I had. Because I recognized that a lot of people strive for that position and I was very grateful for it but at the same time I couldn't live with myself without knowing what else I was capable of having known that throughout high school throughout college I had so many different interests and I think that one of the things that people in their 20s struggle with generally is that in high school and in college there's always a syllabi there's a, a notion that be diverse in high school play sports get involved in extracurriculars do well in your academics and you will land into a good college and fall into a good college there's also grade levels which are important markers in time and advancement that are built in for you that yeah, once you so, leave college so Exactly. It's, not, it's, it's on you. Yeah, and so you have that safety net in high school, and you have that constant feedback all the time, and then you go to college, and it's the same thing. Now it's not do all these things to get into a good college, but it's do all these things to get a good job. But it falters in the sense that many people don't necessarily know what they want to do when they're 18 years old. There's some or 21. People, or 21, but especially when you start college, you might not know what you want to do. And there's a lot of people that do. Their, their parents are in a certain field, or they have a role model that's in a certain field, or since they were little kids, they wanted to be journalists or weathermen or, or whatever it is, and they follow that path. Doctors, lawyers, whatever it is. I didn't have that because I had so many different interests. Mm -hmm. So I sort of followed that syllabi in a positive way. I wasn't doing the things I was doing to get into a good college or to get a good job. I was doing them because I was picking the things that I really liked and I really enjoyed. Um, you know, in college, I played the sport called sprint football, which is lightweight football. And everybody was 172 pounds and under. But other than that, it was football. So it was basically a way for, you know, guys that maybe weren't as athletic as the, the big varsity team guys to still play sports they love and still participate in that team environment and do the workout schedules and the practices and have that feeling of being on a team. I will never forget when we graduated high school, our football coach said many guys might never put a football uniform on again. So remember this because unless you're going pro or you're playing at a big school, where else can you play contact football or hockey or anything? And so to not get on too much of a tangent, but I think I realized when I graduated college that there was no longer a syllabus. And the onus was on, is on us in our 20s and even early 30s to sort of pave our own way and to choose our own destiny. And I just wanted to see if there was something else out there. And you and never know unless you take a chance like that. You really never do. I think as long as you've built up goodwill and as long as you've done right by the people that you've interacted with, people understand that. I think a lot of people understand that. And I think it was more than just being at a good firm like Goldman where those people really did understand. I think it was more at the human level. Yeah, it's a hu we all have that feeling of wanting to know what we're made of. Or I think also one of the first adult things that we realize that we don't realize until college is over maybe. Because usually when you graduate college, most people, it's also around the same time you turn 21 or whatever. And that's really the last birthday that's like a lead up to something important. And I think the first thing, at least for me personally, and I try not to make this about me, 
but the acknowledgement of the passage of time is something that I think as adults is like one of the first self-aware adult things that we realize. You know, it's like what's more important, time or money? And really, at the end of the day, time is more important than money. Because you could have all the money in the world, but you never have all the time in the world. Exactly. And there's a moment, you know, there's a lot of people that I think they are self-aware in, in that way. And they, and they realize I'm going to work very hard. And then I'm going to take six months off by myself or with my spouse or with my partner. And you need that. We're going to travel because we're in our 20s and we're in our 30s and we need to experience these things and build memories that are going to mean something in the world. Because, you know, I just think that that's very important. And, well, and acknowledging and self-awareness is a big thing, I think, for people our age that there's a lot of different tracks that people take and especially in today's modern world with Facebook and social media it's very easy to get lost in the shuffle and see all these other people and it seems like they might have it all figured out but in the end I think they that we're kind of like going back to the Brooklyn thing in high school there's a lot more similarities and differences oh there all, always is we're all experiencing the same thing absolutely and, and even though it might not show at some point you do have to acknowledge that we all are experiencing the same thing and maybe now's not the time to get married maybe now's not the time to be in this role and recognizing that is important and i also think it's important to realize with something like a facebook that we all look inside at our own insecurities because we all have them but then we judge them based on everybody else's front and center because that's what they're posting i might know your insecurities steve if we talk but if you were the kind of guy who's posting all kinds of stuff on facebook i mean honestly i should hope you weren't posting your most insecure things on facebook because that's one of those odd cries for help in that other way too but point being that when we are going through those rough times, we assume that no one else is because no one else is sharing them. Exactly. So it's, kind of like it's a bit of an isolation where maybe I'm not happy in my job or maybe I'm not happy in my city, but everyone else looks like they are. Um, and you lose that college or, or college dorm room mentality. Yeah, where there's a camaraderie that yeah, you're losing. The Everybody the day, segments their life. Yeah, at the end of the day, in a college dorm, everyone's coming back to the same place. Exactly. And it's the sharing of similar experiences. But... In a city like New York, or, or anywhere for that matter, people are going home to their individual lives. And, and as we get older, our lives do diverge in some ways, but people might not realize that, hey, your friends from college might be going through the same exact thing, and we should talk about it. Absolutely, yeah. And, that, and like what we're saying in that the passage of time, when you mark it on your own as an adult, because there is no school anymore to help you do that. And it is important to keep in touch because you're not going to the 12th grade in September. You know what I mean? You have to keep in touch with the people you care about. And Facebook and things like that is great for that. But one thing I noticed is that if there was no Facebook and you and I were best friends, in order to know what's going on in your life, I've got to pick up the phone and call you. Or i got to go ring your bell, which is like totally nobody rings anybody's bell and says hello anymore. It's like if my bell rings and I'm home by myself, my immediate thoughts are, who is ringing my bell right now? You know what I mean? But with Facebook, it allows you to kind of pick up the highlights in people's lives. But it's almost a bad thing in a way because you don't get I don't, to have, to, I don't have to call you. We don't have to have that in-depth conversation. So it's very good, like you're saying, to note that and make a concerted effort to keep in touch yeah. with your friends. I want to switch gears a little bit for a second. Sure. And so you realize that this is uh, what you want to do. You want to take a chance. You don't scorch the earth behind you because you shouldn't. You should turn the other cheek if someone else does wrong by you. But you weren't. Not, that didn't happen to you. You have uh, good relationships with all your former coworkers and peers and superiors. Yeah, fortunately, I see them fairly regularly, like once every few months. And Fantastic. It's unique in that industry, and it's it's really special to me that we maintain that relationship. You know? Mm-hmm. So now, do you take the break? What were you thinking? How soon after did you leave and go on the Trans-Siberian Railroad? There was a little bit of a break. So I resigned in the end of April in 2013. Mm -hmm. And um, my plan was to take two or three months to sort of decompress in a way. And I knew I was undertaking a major refocus. I didn't want to jump at the first thing I saw. Right. I sort of wanted to collect my thoughts. Good that idea. The trip that I, we mentioned, the three-week trip across the Trans-Siberian Railroad, wasn't until September. So you didn't have that plan when you left Golden Sands? I did not have that plan, no. That trip took root sometime in July, uh, where my friends had planned it, and they were talking about it, and I said, you know, why not? I loved trains, I loved seeing new places, and the biggest thing was just connecting with people from around the world, and I jumped on it. And we got our visas for China and Russia, and we hopped on the train in September. But much earlier than that, and much more to my surprise, came what would become my next year of work, which was in May. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I was going to lead in by saying that it seems to me that you are someone who understands tradition and brotherhood. You spoke about that here. Being that you like trains and you like history and you understand that sometimes in order to look forward, you first have to look back. And a chance encounter at a wedding helped you do that simultaneously in a lot of ways, both look forward and look back. And I wonder if you would mind now going into that a little bit. Of course. So just weeks after I resigned, I was at a wedding in Long Island and seated at my table was a gentleman who I had... I'd probably seen three or four times in my life and vaguely remembered every time I saw him how he sort of carried himself in a way that was unlike many other people. He was always dressed very well, very formally. He carried himself with an upright posture and a big smile on his face that just had this aura uh, around him. So he's sitting at my table and I was obviously at a very interesting place in my life having just left a very fortunate position that I had worked hard for the last five years to reach and you know it had only been like I said two or three weeks and I'm sitting at this wedding and so we started talking and uh, at the time the gentleman was 94 years old and he had a pin and it indicated that he had served in a war and we spoke started pretty informally just sort of asking him about his life and what he's seen in his life and this and that and two hours later we were still talking and he had shared with me some very intimate moments of his life and of being a member of the U.S. Army during World War II and his ability to articulate his experiences and then even more so the content of his experiences I found very moving and I think he could see that and my enthusiasm is just someone who has always appreciated history I was a government major I've always had uh, inclination to find interest in veterans and war and the evolution of societies and he broke down towards the end of the conversation and said that he's always wanted to write it down so that his family would know about it and big theme was that not many people knew about what happened to him Mm -hmm. And he started to tear up a bit. And I said to myself, I can write. And this story is incredible. And this man is incredible. Let me volunteer to write his story. Mm -hmm. It's somewhat amazing to me that he is as positive a force. For those of you who know, I've read the story that Steve wrote. And there are photos in it. Like you said, I can picture him when you say he's very well dressed. And there's a positive aura around him. And it's almost a little bit surprising to me that... And I wouldn't say that he bottled this story up for all these years. Because those who were family and friends probably knew. But that it didn't eat at him, that he didn't tell it on a wider scale for 75 years, basically, or 70 years. So, but anyway, please continue. I just wanted to yeah, know no, that. Yeah, absolutely. And it shows you the strength of his character, I guess is what I mean. Yeah, and that was one of the things that really resonated. It was always that, I think that all the things I've described, it was really just his character that, that stood out to me, and the values that he represented, and the values of his generation, really. Mm-hmm. And I recognized, I mean, I, I had seen Saving Private Ryan and I watched Band of Brothers and 16 million Americans fought in World War II. And there's 16 million individual stories and there's even more from the other countries that fought on both sides of the war. I just felt almost not that this story needs to be told because of the action and, and the heroism and, and all of the things that happened, but more so... This story needs to be told because this is a man in his late 90s and it's almost like he deserves the humanity the humanity of knowing that what he did was not in vain and right. that what he did would be remembered. At least if not remembered, it would be recorded so that someone can remember in the future. Absolutely. And rightfully admired for it. And rightfully admired because for it. Because he didn't have to exactly. be as courageous as he did. Exactly. Those were, those were conscious choices. And I think that a lot of what he went through and a lot of what he experienced was similar to what a lot of World War II veterans and veterans from all wars had experienced. And that was one of the major themes, I think, that I wanted to focus on, which is just that his story is indicative of a broader generation story and what that kind of means. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that goes towards where we were at in your life. I find that it's fitting to me, knowing where your life was at a year ago, that you two found each other, essentially. And so you took the time to record his story down. Because I also think that in a lot of ways it was therapeutic for you as well in helping you I mean he was telling you a story about paths that he had gone down it was in a way helping you figure out your own and I had said to you before off audio that he had brought up in the book teaching the men around him his skills during the war while this was going on in case Pete got hit with a mortar shell or something and died somebody had to make sure that the rest of the company or had the skills that he had and was able to pick up so that more men didn't die. And I think that people have a tendency to want to teach others. Not in a selfish way. I think in a connecting way. Tony, he's getting life 
from you as you get life from him. Do you know what I mean? There's that human connection that makes it easier to get up in the morning and enjoy what you're doing. And I think that also that goes back to you leaving your job because the people that you worked with, you had that and you still have that human connection with them that even if they don't say it kind of like the family of Mongolia, you didn't need to speak with words, but there was a sense, a human sense of acceptance and admiration between people that made it okay for you to go off and do what you wanted to do, or anybody for that matter. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, that night, the, the night of the wedding, I basically offered to write a book for him. I didn't know it was going to be a book at the time. I just I just said I would write his story down, and I assumed it would be a, a smaller piece, and I, I never thought it would turn into what it did. I was so moved by the story that I went home that night, and actually, I'll never forget, I was actually in the car driving home, uh, as a passenger, not driver, and I was on my phone typing everything that he said into sort of like a bulleted email to remember all of the amazing mm-hmm. stories that he'd written down. And I had not written much since college. I'd written financial papers and stuff like that while I was working, but I was compelled to write an article about this man's life. And I compared it to another article that I had actually recently read that was actually in a self-written obituary by a man who had lived an incredible life and was a reporter and had reported on every major event hit in the 20th century and just happened to be there for like some of the largest wars and elections and, and shootings and good news, bad news, the Beatles, every, everything, all these major stories. And he was he there. Is, he was history. He was at a funeral and he said to himself, there aren't many people around that remember, like are able to testify to this gentleman's life and realize that the same would happen to him. So he wrote his own obituary. And then when he passed away, which was the day I read the article, his own obituary was there writing about his life. So that sort of like highlighted the significance of this generation of people in their 80s and 90s who have experienced a century almost of amazing changes, positive and negative progress, and also failures of our country and of the world over the last 90 to 100 years and the importance of their experience. And to bring it back, and I know we didn't intend to do this in any way, but the, the same internal feelings that I had when I went on the Trans-Siberian Railroad and connections that I made while I was at Goldman, they sort of speak to that same raw emotion and feeling that that I think anyone gets when they speak with an articulate, intelligent, older person from a later generation. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about what life was like in the 1920s and the 1930s and the 1940s. And that sort of communicated experience of a time that was well before we got here is powerful. And so I wrote this article that night and I had told him at the wedding, call me if you want me to write this. I understand it's sensitive and I don't want to pressure you in any way. And please just call me if you want me to do this. I'd be more than happy to. And two months later, he called me and I sent him what I said. I'm so happy that you called. And I actually wrote this article that night and I haven't showed it to anyone, but I'll send it to you. So through his daughter, I got over to him and uh, he loved it so much it brought tears to his eyes it meant a lot just this article that I wrote in one evening and it progressed into me visiting him at his home in Long Island and meeting with him time and time again we must have met over a dozen times and recorded over 25 hours of material and it was just us sitting at a kitchen table him at the head of the table, me at the side, and him talking about the war and essentially me interviewing him. Not just the war, but his life about immigrating from Italy, growing up in Brooklyn as a young immigrant, and his life after the war, and his life now with his wife. And the experience of sitting across from men, looking him in the eye, and hearing him tell his story was very powerful. It spoke to that human connection that we've touched on in, in other ways throughout this interview. He was getting to live it again, and you were living it for with the, him. For the first time. Right. And in living it for the first time, I was compelled to, from this small project, turn it into a larger project that represented, there's a ton of World War II content out there. Sure, there's, there's many organizations that have done a lot to cherish the record. There's been countless books and movies yeah. and films and documentaries. Ken Burns, you name it. And what I wanted to do with this project was recreate the experience of sitting across from him, but not making it as raw as just a conversation between two people, but adding the thematic tones that underlie this, the story. Those were innocence and humility and survival and many others that I think that represented the entire generation. Absolutely. And that he was able as a now 95-year-old man to so articulately convey that it's more than just a war story at that point. It's more of a human story. And it's a human story that connects you with generation that has a lot to teach us about sacrifice and about the character and integrity and the traits that we need in our generation that we should pass on to our children that is easily escapes us in the instant age that we live in and 
how immediate gratification and you know frankly we've just been very blessed we have been blessed and because about, of and we have basically been blessed because of men like him and that war changed yeah. everything essentially the human landscape going forward in America yeah absolutely and in many ways the whole world landscape would be different well, obviously yeah nuclear, nuclear energy changed everything guys James again Steve and I took a quick pause here and we actually came back a couple of months later with new information about the publishing of Untouched Heroics so we're gonna pick it up right at this moment with part two here we go with more Stephen Atanasio I think maybe we can talk about the appreciation that we should have for a man like this who risked his life and not for the glory of it. He did it because it was the right thing to do. I guess my point is that towards the end of the book, I really tried to harp on the concept of these ordinary individuals being put into extraordinary circumstances by their will or the will of others, uh, more importantly with the draft. And uh, everything's about making sure that history doesn't repeat itself. And I think that as we get further and further from that generation, our children and our children's children aren't going to have the same concept of what actually happened. As we said earlier, and we've said many times, Tony is not the only story. And while his story, in my opinion, is extraordinary, there are many millions of soldiers who have stories just like that from World War II, who are fortunate enough to still be alive and still have their facilities, and from wars that are going on right now. And I think that it's really important that we recognize that and we understand that or, you know, history will just repeat itself. And on the other side of it, there's these people that went through this and then were forced to live normal, ordinary lives when they got back. And some struggled with that very much so. PTSD was not something that people had a really good understanding about back then. And, and we're still working towards having a better understanding of that now, things have gotten a lot better, but you had people coming home and, and, you know, they used terms like battle fatigue and, you know, it was considered a weakness that you couldn't go on with your life once you got back from the war. A lot of people struggled, Tony struggled, but Tony's one of those stories where while he struggled, he managed to make the best of things. He managed to keep his positive attitude and the values that he was frankly raised on, which is why I like to harp so much on the beginning of the book as sort of a development period. It really shows the reader what life was like back then and what was going through his mind leading into this. Because you have to remember, by the time he was 26 years old, and I'm 28, and by the time he was 26 years old, he had been through four or five years of war and been all over the world and in some of the worst, most difficult, most challenging situations. And now it was like, okay, now go on with your life like nothing ever happened. I have a tremendous appreciation for that. I know many people do. And the whole point of this book was really just to, as a thank you, have this man's story written down so that his family can enjoy it, so that future generations can enjoy it, and also so that anyone that reads it gets a sense that this is Tony Verone's story, but there's thousands of other Tony Verones out there whose stories were never written down. Absolutely. And focus. It wasn't so much the glorification and it wasn't so much the uh, look what this guy did, but more so this happened. And I'm a layman. I'm not a historian writing this. I'm not trying to rewrite the World War II books because there's been so many written. And frankly, I'm not an historian, so I don't have the qualifications to present new analysis, but I do have the qualifications to understand another human being and to try to replicate that into the pages of the book. And so that's what I tried to do. Absolutely. And I think you were incredibly successful with that. And when you started to say at the beginning, I think it's ordinary men placed in extraordinary situations. And so many men who didn't come back were heroes. So many men who did come back were heroes. And you're right, Tony had that strong family foundation growing up, whether not only through his family, but growing up on the streets of New York, you know, not literally on the streets, but the cultural understanding that he had going into the war and the kind of man that he innately was, how many lives he saved because of who he was as a man. And not having told that story before publicly, I do think he deserves to have that story told. If anything, he was teaching people throughout the war his skills in case something happened to him. And just because he's in his 90s now, doesn't mean that he can't continue to teach people these same skills through you, in this case, in the book. People who read this book can learn something about themselves and take something with them. And that's very actionable and good. Exactly. And I think that's the biggest thing. It's that it's amazing what he's able to share in terms of what was going on in his mind during the war, what was going on in his mind after he survived death 20 plus times, 30 plus times. What do you do after that point? How do you wake up the next morning? What do you do the next time you're going into battle? And he spoke about it, and I included it in the book, how at times he just didn't care. He said, if they're going to hit me, let them hit me, because 
I can't be worrying about whether I'm going to live or die anymore because this is literally 24 seven, 365 days of the year that I've been doing this now, you know, on year three and year four and year five. And it gets to the point where they just start to do their job. It's just like any other job that we have, except their job is a matter of life and death. And hearing that was pretty incredible. And, you know, it puts me on a topic of one of the biggest things I was thinking about going into this is the, I think it's very salient when you look at the situation. I'm a 28 year old speaking to a 95 year old man and there's pig gap there in terms of experience and generational ideals and perspective and I couldn't help but think of the book Tuesdays with Maury that was written you know some time ago where a younger guy was conversing with his former college professor and while the former college professor was towards the end of his life this younger guy got a lot of lessons that this guy had learned in his whole life so there's definitely something to be said about an older generation being able to pass on the most valuable characteristics and traits and, and ideals that they have and, and that's sort of one of the big themes I I think of the book was this concept of not directly telling the reader, hey, this value is innocence and this value is humility, but more so saying, read this book and approach it with a degree of respect that you're sort of going back in time here and let his actions teach you how this generation viewed the world and how they looked at life. Yeah, absolutely. Coming out of the Great Depression, like that generation was, they didn't take the things for granted that we might take for granted in our generation today. They had people working to support their family from the time they're 10, 11 years old. They didn't have the kind of free ride that a lot of us have into adulthood. Not that everybody does. I mean, the perfect, the perfect example is my grandfather on my father's side was also in the war. He was on a B-24 bomber, I believe, like dropping bombs in, I believe, the Western theater. He was from that same generation. He passed away, unfortunately, but he used to always clean his plate. We would go out to dinner and he would not leave a speck of food on his plate and you know you could go to some restaurants and they'll give you a tremendous portion he would eat way beyond the point of when he was full because he was taught his entire life do not leave a scrap of food on that plate and it's a simple analogy and a simple little anecdote but I think that that is one of the many indicative elements that we were talking about in terms of just coming out of the depression having different values and and he kept that concept of whatever's put in front of me I need to eat into his later later years so the majority of people from that generation took absolutely nothing for granted because they weren't given anything that they didn't have to work for. So how could you take that for granted? Yeah, we talk about Tony's many jobs growing up before the war and how he was doing this and doing that. And that wasn't that uncommon. A lot of kids his age had multiple jobs and were doing all these different things. Yeah, absolutely. So you have decided to self-publish this book, correct? Correct. I did. What the process was for you to self-publish a book, because the majority of people have never self-published a book. And so what was that like? So there's a short version and there's a long version, and I'll try to give you something in the middle. But having written this book, first time author, no sort of credentials on the back end of I was a journalist here or I, I worked at XYZ agency. It's very difficult as a first time author to get representation. And my understanding, I did a lot of research, was that there were three main platforms that I could go on. There was the the traditional publishing route, which was you know the major publishers that you see on the backs of most books when you go into a bookstore. And that requires literally agent representation. So first, it's kind of like finding a job. First, you have to find a literary agent. And then once you get the literary agent, which is very hard to do, and you can get rejected upwards of 20 times, that agent then takes your book and tries to pitch it to publishers. So it's a very long process. It can take over a year, over two years to get that agent and then for the agent to then get the publisher. And then once the publisher gets the book, they're probably going to want to make some changes. They're definitely going to copy edit it, but they might say, hey, this section's better here and we want to move this paragraph. And so that process takes a long time. And then the next level is independent publishing, which is basically a smaller publishing company that doesn't, you will not be required to have a literary agent and you can just present directly to the publisher. The publisher takes you up and then everything else is the same. Now in both of those instances, it doesn't cost the author anything and you were given some royalties or whatever on the back end, which are very, very small and they market the book. The third and final option is self-publishing and self-publishing was something that I think a long time ago was looked down upon. The problem there was anyone could do it. Anyone could take their journal, their notes, their book, and they could self-publish it because essentially you're paying a fee to get it on Amazon or to get it in some format where it's printed. You pay as an author, you pay a fee to do that. And as a result, the quantity went up tremendously. There was a ton of books being published, but you have to imagine quality goes down because there isn't that same degree of vetting that occurs at the traditional publisher level. So I did some research and I decided, hey, I want to do the best I can by Tony. So let me just try this agent route and try to get a literary agent and see if we can traditionally publish it. The journey was probably about four to six months where I just spoke to people and met all sorts of people, just exhausted my network from school, from work, from everywhere. And I don't regret doing it by any means, but 
after about six months and having still currently having some leads out there where people are still reviewing the book and having others read the book and they said, we love the story, but we don't, we're not sure if this can be marketed, you know, which is understandable. The World War II market is very flooded. There's a lot of books that are written about World War II and these literary agents need to make money, right? They need to support themselves. And unless they think a book is going to sell hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies, if not more, it's kind of tough for them to justify putting their time into that book. Um, so I had some really kind responses from people, but they really appreciated the way I went about it and the way I approached it and they enjoyed reading it, but they just didn't feel like it was the needle in the haystack that they could represent. And I completely understand that because the concept of producing a book that is going to sell a massive amount of copies is a much different than sort of the labor of love that I went into with this book to just tell the man's story as it was and not think about the marketability of this particular section or that particular section, et cetera. So after about four or five months of, of trying to do this, and I said, hey, there's no downside to me looking into the self-publishing route. There was also an element of, hey, you know, Tony's 95 years old. And I mentioned in the book how many times he's been in and out of the hospital and how many times he's survived this and that and, and all these other things, let alone surviving the war, let alone surviving the, the crazy things that happened to him in his childhood. In the last 25 years of his life, we're talking almost double digits of times that this guy's life was severely threatened, as you would expect for somebody that's reached 95 years old. I mean, I think there's very few 95-year-olds that are kicking like they never had to go to the hospital and nothing ever happened to him. But recently, he had not been feeling as well. And I was just thinking to myself, what was the original point of why I wrote this? Like, what was, what was the point? Was it to get it traditionally published and have it on bookshelves? Or was it to make someone from a generation that should be treasured, have his dream of having his story be passed on to future generations be realized? And the answer was pretty obvious. And I said to myself, it's more important to me to have this book in his hands and have him be able to enjoy it than it is to concern myself about the perception of how the book is published. I put 200% into it and I felt good that the way I structured it and everything that people would truly enjoy it. So I went to a couple of self-publishers and checked it out. And then I said to myself, I think I can do this truly on my own. And I went to Amazon CreateSpace, formatted the book on my own, and it wound up being very minimal. I purchased ISBNs, which are identifiers, unique identifiers for the specific version of your book and your book, so that there's no confusion in terms of being able to search for it. And other than that, it was really a very straightforward entrepreneurial process of going on to CreateSpace, and uh, I enjoyed it tremendously. So currently, I have a proof of the book, meaning a paperback version that's supposed to be a sample of what the book would look like. I reviewed it meticulously over the last several weeks. I'm waiting on the final proof, which should be coming this week, and then it should be out by Veterans Day. So it'll be on Amazon.com. It'll be in paperback and ebook. And what more could he or I ask for in that regard? And just, like I said, getting it out to his friends, to his family, to other veterans, and to my friends and family so that I can share his story with them, because those are the people that are going to be responsible for carrying it on to the future. I really, for, on a personal level, appreciate that you have the wherewithal to realize that in this case, you are basically a conduit to his story and you didn't lose sight of that. It wasn't about trying to get it published, like you're saying, trying to have as much of a mass market as possible. It was essentially a gift to him. He gifted his story to you and you're gifting it back to him by being able to share it with the world. Exactly. And, you know, I mentioned earlier how amazing his family's genes are and how amazing his wife's genes are. I tell him all the time, we joke around, you're going to live to 105. But even if he's going to live to 105, I want him to enjoy every single one of those 10 years with this book in his hand. And I don't want to risk waiting three years to have the book traditionally published and have someone change the format and change the way it looks and all this other stuff. But if I ever decide to write another book, I would totally consider going down the traditional publishing route. And, and even this book could be adopted by a traditional publisher. But it, like you said, James, it just became a very clear cut decision that I want to have this book in his hands as soon as possible. And the self-publishing route was, uh, especially with Amazon CreateSpace, I, I've read a lot of reviews about a lot of different publishers. And obviously there's, there's good stories and there's bad, but so far my experience has been fantastic. And I'm just really excited to get it out there. Some of the things that we've talked about on this podcast, which the original topic was switching gears in your professional career and how to make it work when you left your job at Goldman Sachs. And I think one of the underlying elements to all of this and your experiences over the last 12 to 18 months are in order to accomplish the things that you truly want to accomplish in life, you have to step back and be able to see the forest through the trees. And you are somebody who seems to be able to do that incredibly well. You have the ability to look at a situation and go, well, what's the point of it? Why was I doing it in the first place? What do I really want out of this? What's the overarching theme to this situation? 
And you're somebody who, through your own upbringing, has been able to do that really successfully. And I think that's part of the reason why you were able to connect so well with Tony was because he's somebody who, obviously, being at war for as long as he was, but also just in general in his life, was always able to see the forest through the trees and understand the big picture. And I think that's really important and something that our listeners can take away from this, that sometimes we get in our own way and you have to step back and look at the entire spectrum. What's the point here? What's the real thing that I'm trying to hit on or I need to hit on? And when I can go down that route, that's what's going to lead to the best outcome. Exactly. So you mentioned that Tony uh, has had some health troubles, but he's 95. He's still kicking. He has great genes. His siblings are still alive? Three siblings, and they're all still alive in their late 80s and early 90s. And they still see each other, not as often as they'd like, I'm sure, but they still do see each other, and they're still very close. And yeah, he himself, he's going to be 96. It's amazing. And uh, his spirit and his attitude is just phenomenal when he goes through some pretty traumatic things and then comes out the other side. And it's like, hey, you know, I made it. I'm feeling good. Hopefully, I'm going to get better over the next couple of weeks, months, and I'm back. I'm you know, doing good. And these are things that just speak to that resilience that I think was the reason that he was able to go through the war and sort of that if you want to see the silver lining, once you've made it through such a horrific four years, you have a perspective on what your resilience level is. I've been fortunate to hear some inspirational people speak about the topics of resiliency and things like that. And the common thread that I hear is resilience is not innate. It is not something that we're biologically given. It's something that's mental. And it's about the way you perceive what's happening to you and the way you think about it. I think that any part of that generation that was able to overcome the PTSD, to overcome the flashbacks and and the horrible memories of lost friends, just the sights that they had seen. And beyond that, the people that were physically disabled and the wounded warriors that came out of it and their lives were truly physically never the same. They lost limbs, they were disabled in some way. The people that went through that and were able to overcome and live relatively normal lives, and to be explicitly clear, they are no better or worse than those that could not overcome it. But those who were fortunate enough to overcome it, I think they had a different calibration for how resilient they could be. And I think that as Tony gets into his late 80s and his early 90s and now 95 years old, these trips to the hospital, these setbacks that could for other people in his age bracket be fatal, wind up being a bump in the road. You're looking at him and you're saying, how is he still hanging in there? And then he comes out and today he's got the big bright smile on his face and he's the Tony that he was before he went into it. And I think that, again, everything I say about this man is indicative of his peers and indicative of his generation, but there are many, many people like this. And there's something to be said about that resilience of the human spirit and about the the perspective that these people took back then and now. It's so easy for our generation to walk up and down the street and see these people or see things on the news or see things in the newspapers and not have it sink in to the degree that it probably should. And it's not a coming down on our generation or anything like that. It's more of just pointing out something that was probably obvious to everyone in their mind, but the most obvious things sometimes get missed. Absolutely. That you think about and you know, retrospectively, sometimes one person says it and all of a sudden it's like, Eureka, that's a really good point. And that's something that I have not thought about in a while that I always knew, but I never thought about in a while. Because the concept of paying tribute to our veterans is something that resonates throughout our American society. But what does it really mean? And do we really take a chance to reflect on it and to appreciate it? And I think it's also important to note, like you're saying, that Tony has a strong resiliency based on the experiences that he's had in his life, both good and bad. And he's also somebody who looks at the glass half full. So yeah, he's in the hospital, but he's not given up. I think the will to live, like you're saying, if it's strong in a person, they'll look at the positive aspect of life and take that from it and not the, oh, I spent the week in the hospital part of it. We can accomplish anything we want in this life if we start to look at all the possibilities. If we're always looking at all the reasons why we can't accomplish something, then how could we do it? And that goes back to the original point of you switching your careers. If you didn't believe that you could leave Goldman Sachs, you would have never left Goldman Sachs. You said, I don't want to wake up and look in the mirror and wonder what could have been. Well, if you live for the day and you live positively and you look at the glass half full, you will always, at the end of the day, feel like you came out ahead. Exactly. And I think that one of the important points to make is that Tony was not perfect. And I never meant to paint him in that picture by any means. It's more about the averages, right? Over time, yeah, over absolutely. The many things that you encounter, how do you respond? I never intended to paint the picture of this man's life after the war was this big rosy time or that my own personal leaving of my career for the past five years and then stepping out into this unknown adventure was something that was just, you know, 
I had a bright smile on my face. There were parts that were scary. There were parts that were full of doubt. But again, it's that what are you doing over the average? What are you doing over the long run? How are you looking at your situation? How are you behaving? And I think that I, I've said this a thousand times, but I didn't regret a minute of the past year and a half of my life. I, it was some of the best months that I've ever had in my life in terms of just feeling empowered to do something that I really believed in and to have the flexibility to do it and the opportunity to do it and that, that gratitude that comes with it. And I think, you know, you can parallel that to sort of how Tony looked at his life. He went through hard times. He came out of the war in many ways, very optimistic, but then became broken by realities that he didn't know existed in terms of how he was going to be treated when he got back. And I think that over time, he trended positive, if that makes yeah, sense. absolutely. No, it does make total sense. And we're human beings. None of us are saints. So we do bad things. We do good things. As long as we're self-aware. And not bad, but just like, you know, you know make mistakes. Yeah, making mistakes. And but correcting them, saying, all right, I messed up there. Let's try to make sure that doesn't happen again. And I think sometimes people have a tendency to, for years at a time, beat themselves up over mistakes that they've made when they're just reliving that trauma over and over again when you have to move forward. Tony was able to move forward from the trauma of war because at some point in time, he made a decision mentally to move forward, that he was here. He wasn't in war anymore. He needed to live his life. And in doing so, if he had lost happiness, he was regaining it because of that, because he was experiencing new things. He wasn't continuously reliving the same yeah, trauma exactly. over and over again. He regained it in his work. He regained it in his volunteer work. He regained it in his family and children and his grandchildren and in living his life. He found outlets. And I think that yeah, was the biggest thing it's about finding one of the best treatments for depression and for going through difficult things are finding outlets of creativity and finding outlets to find peace. That is the trick. That is what you can, and it's even so much easier said than done. And it doesn't, oh, sure. It doesn't simplify the problem by any means, but it's just he found his ways to overcome what he had gone through. Right. And on a very basic level, if you think about it, it would make sense that one way to treat depression is to do things you enjoy <laughs> because you're going to enjoy them. So, well, it was so simple, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if only, if only we could find it so easy to get out of our own way in that way. But that's why we're humans. We have to have these experiences in order to grow from them. Now you, since the or the original recording, have moved forward in your own life. You were on a break where you were finishing the book, you had taken the trip, but you've recently gone back into the work world. And I just want to ask you some basics as to how that came about. When did that happen? What happened? And where are you now? I've made the joke I should sit at more dinner tables, and uh, I'll explain. I'll explain that. <laughs> that's in a, a great. But that's a great point. <laughs> I'll explain that in a second. But like I said originally, I, I had been very fortunate to work for those five years that I did, and I saved up very much over those five years and, and managed my finances appropriately, and I was able to take this opportunity to write the book. But you know, over a year had gone by. I had a reality that I needed to re-enter the workforce. I, I had taken this time, written this book. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I needed to think about what the next move was. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I was looking at the potential of going back into something similar to what I was doing when I left. I thought about picking up brand new careers, but I was very open. I think open-mindedness is the biggest theme of this. I, I was very open to whatever the next path was. And I realized how the next thing I wanted to do was something that I wanted to be make sure I was learning, but it was more about just finding a good spot, good people to work with and be in this environment where I could learn. So I wasn't looking yet. And there was this charity that one of the people that I used to work with, he's probably one of the most incredible people I know, very unfortunately lost his son uh, in 2007 to a pediatric brain tumor. And the son was seven years old and they set up a charity, he and his wife, shortly after. Over the past seven years, they've managed to raise over $8 million. That money has gone to helping over 400 families pay for the bills because basically when these kids get diagnosed, you could have a family that's a working class family that is just barely struggling to make the bills. And then they get this crushing news that somebody that they care about so much that's so important and central to their lives has this horrible diagnosis. And treating the child and giving the child every single chance they have to live often entails major sacrifices, financial sacrifices, career sacrifices. It puts a stress on the family. They're forced to, in many cases, move two-month or three-month periods to the best centers in the country so that they're close to the best centers in the country and, and their child could get the best care and stuff like that. And the concept of this charity is that it raised money to support those families so that they didn't have to worry about the financial part of it. They didn't have to worry about missing work and about having to pay for lodging near a facility in another state where their child was being treated. The money also went to research grants and to help 
this charity does it right. And they've really made a direct impact on these people's lives. So the short version is that I basically had helped this man who I worked with, with this one event that he planned every year. And I helped in a very, very minuscule way, but just working on spreadsheets and stuff for the attendance list and the seating charts and stuff like that. So I had done that since my first year at Goldman and I did it for the next five. And then once I left Goldman, I believed in the charity and I, he was someone that really helped me in my career. So I helped him afterwards. And as a result, this annual event that they have where they raise the majority of the funds for the year, I was invited to this past September. And so my girlfriend and I went to the charity and we were sitting at a table for 10 people with two other people at the table, a man and his wife. And after interacting with the people who I used to work with and saying hi, and, and it was like a reunion of sorts, I managed to speak to this man at my table. And it turned out that he had an investment company that was looking for someone kind of like me. It was very strange because we started a conversation about ISIS and about the events in Iraq and Syria. And I, through my trying to get published, had been connected with a, a New York Times journalist who was writing on the ground. Ironically enough, me and the journalist never even spoke <laughs> because the journalist was in the Ukraine and he was in Iraq on the ground interviewing troops. And he offered through my coach of sprint football at Cornell to help me and to speak to me about the book and get me in touch with an agent. And then we never had an opportunity to speak because he's just, the world has gotten so crazy over the last however many months since I met him. But ironically enough, I had been following this journalist and reading his articles. And when the gentleman at my table was speaking with another about ISIS, I wanted to chime in and share some information that I'd gotten from one of these articles. And that was the basis of the conversation. And that was how it came about. And next thing I knew, the guy asked me if I wanted to come in for an interview. So two weeks later, I was starting. And what I'm doing is just a bit of the antithesis of what I used to do. What I used to do was facilitate investors investing. So you had mutual funds and you had hedge funds and separately managed accounts, and they were looking to invest in municipal bonds. And I sat on what's called the sell side. I facilitated the buying and the selling between these investors. Now I found a job on the buy side, which is the investor side. The way I looked at this opportunity was, to, it was a chance to sit with very intelligent people and to learn about a lot of different industries, a lot of different financial products, a lot of different companies in a very condensed format. And so being the person that had a lot of different interests growing up and being the person that in college couldn't figure out my major until junior year and then went with sort of an international relations government major, I found this opportunity to be one where I would be able to track all the things that were going on in the world and in the process learn a lot about how companies and industries operate and how they're formed and how they're structured. And to me, that was a valuable opportunity. It's kind of like a paid MBA that hopefully is much longer than two years. So I'm looking at this as a new and exciting opportunity, and it came about at a serendipitous time. And that's why I say I should sit at more dinner tables because I met Tony at a dinner table and I met my future uh, employer at a dinner table as well. So we'll see what happens next. Your remark about sitting at more dinner tables is accurate also because shared experiences. And that goes back to the experiences that you had in the yurt with the Mongolian family. You couldn't speak the language, but it didn't matter. You had that shared human experience. Or it goes back to your experiences with Tony. You sat at a dinner table. You guys were able to share an experience. And it shows you how strong humanity can be if we just talk to each other and we just listen to what each other has to say. I want you to plug for me some of the book information. You said it's going to be live on November yes. 11th of this year, so Veterans Day, November 11th, 2014. And the paperback will be 9.95, correct? That's correct. And for those of you, uh, that's because Tony was in the 9th Infantry Division and is 95 years old. Exactly. It's also, it's also a nice round price, but <laughs> so it makes sense. No, I mean, you know, as I said earlier, the royalties in this business are not spectacular, and I was never looking at this as a money-making opportunity. You know, it still remains to talk to Tony, but I, I was thinking about potentially taking these proceeds and putting them towards something meaningful. And we're still working on that. We're still very much in the early phases of this. Knock on wood, hoping that everything comes to fruition. The book should be available on Veterans Day or before. Ideally, I'm trying to get it out a few days before. I think it could not be more of an appropriate time that this all came to fruition. And I think that the phrase that things happen for a reason could not be more applicable. You know, if I had not spent those months trying to get it traditionally published, it would not have come out at the same time that it is coming out now. It wouldn't have came out in the same format. The way I, I'm so happy with the way it came out. I'm so happy with the way it looks. I just very, very humbly hope that people appreciate it and that they enjoy it. More, enjoy it is the word, not appreciate. I hope that they enjoy it. I hope that someone can sit down and read this in a relatively short period of time and say, that was worth my time. And that, that would be the best gift to me. And that would be the best gift to Tony. And that's what I'm focused on. Planning, like I said, having it on amazon.com. I also have the website, www.untouchedheroics.com just the title of the book.
That website gives a background of how the book came about. It gives a summary of the book, and I'm going to add a purchase page that will link directly to amazon.com as well, so that if someone wants to find it in that way, they can as well. I'll have a Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash untouched heroics, and I just haven't made it live yet because I'm waiting for the book to be released. And that's basically it. Paperback's going to be $9.95, like you said, because he was in the ninth division and he was 95 years old, and I couldn't think of a more appropriate price because I wanted to find something that people would be willing to take a risk on and something that was meaningful because like I said, I really never looked at this as a money-making operation, but more just getting the word out. I actually had had a lot of people read drafts of it and stuff like that. And I was just trying to get it out there to get a sense of people's reactions and how I could structure the book. So to have this come to the point that it has over the time that it has, and I know many books take much, much longer to write as a layman to take someone's story, like so many people have in this country, a, a veteran story and try to write it down and to have it come out the way this did, I think it can be meaningful for people. And I'm just happy that you're, I'm at this point now. And I think as somebody who's read the book, you have done that in a fantastic way. And I want to thank you for that. And as I'm sure a lot of people will in the coming months. And I also want to thank you for taking the time twice to talk with me about all the experiences that you've had over the last 18 months and in your life in general. Of course, James. Thank you so much. I think that what you're doing with the Wall Breakers is fantastic. And I think that you're bringing together communities of people and you're also bringing to light a lot of things that I think people might not notice. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be a part of the community and giving me an opportunity to share my story on such a great platform. And I wish you the best of success going forward. I think that what you're doing is a story in itself and someone should be interviewing you about your journey. You're definitely taking a leap of faith courageously and I'm really excited to see where the Wall Breakers goes. Well, I think one thing that people can definitely take away from this is if you don't take chances in life, you'll never know what you can do. Exactly. All right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, James. I couldn't agree more with Steve's assessment that we should all sit at more dinner tables. I think that shared experiences are where we find the commonality with people in life. And as you can see from Steve's story, he's had a lot of great experiences over the last 18 months sitting at dinner tables with different interesting people. I want to note really quickly that the obituary that Steve mentioned early on in the podcast was by a man named Peter Worthington. And you can get that article in a link that I have included in the information in the podcast. It's a Toronto Sun link from May 14th of 2013 called Peter Worthington in his own words. Once again, the book Untouched Heroics will be out by November 11th of this year. And you can get it by going to Amazon.com. You should also check out Untouched Heroics Facebook page, Facebook.com slash Untouched Heroics. We're going to untouchedheroics.com. I want to thank Steve once again for being such a strong guest here. He is the last interview of this season. Next week, I'll come back and we'll do a wrap about season one of the podcast. I'd love to get your guys' feedback on what you thought of this podcast. It's something that I had considered doing for a long time and had the courage to finally get together and get done. As you know, there's a lot going on with the Wallbreakers these days, including our relaunch in February of 2015. Once again, I'm not going to harp on it too much since I've told you guys about it several times, but we are having a fundraiser to help with the cost of relaunching the site and paying for lawyer fees and paying for accountant fees. Mostly, it's going towards development costs, but if you'd like to donate or you want to check out some more information, please go to gofundme.com slash thewallbreakers. And if you want to hear even more information about that, you can check out episode four of this podcast where I go into more details about the launch. You can also check out an op-ed that I recently wrote and published on the Wallbreakers called The Furthest I've Ever Been Out of My Comfort Zone, My Current Experience with a Crowdfunding Campaign. And it goes into needing you guys in this world because I'm not really here talking to myself, or at least I hope I'm not. I want to know what you guys think and I want to make it better through your opinions and through your actions. So I want to thank you once again, guys. And if Steve has taught us anything this week, it's that what you should do is get out there this week, talk to people around you, share experiences, find out a little bit more about yourself and the process, and keep getting out there and keep breaking those walls. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls. And until next time, guys, I'll catch you on the flip side. Children, my darling, please wait for me till then, no matter when it will be one day, I know I'll be back again, please wait till then.